Thank you, Doug. Hello, friends. We're here tonight to welcome Belle Boggs and to hear her read. We're supported this evening by the West Virginia Humanities Council, and we'd like to thank them for their support. And I just need to ask any audience members who are not a part of the MFA program, if y'all could fill out uh, the evaluation forms at the end of the evening for, for us. We've got them over here on the table, and I'll make sure that those make their way around. Uh, that just helps us to give feedback to the Humanities Council and continue that relationship. And we will also have Bell's books for sale on the table over here at the end of the evening. Belle Boggs is the author of three books. Her essay collection, The Art of Waiting on Fertility, Medicine, and Motherhood, was a finalist for the Pin Diamondstein Spielvogel Award for the Art of the Essay and was named a Best Book of the Year by Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, The Globe and Mail, BuzzFeed, and O, oh, The Oprah Magazine. Mattapanai Queen, her collection of linked stories set along Virginia's Mattapanai River, won the Bakeless Prize and the Library of Virginia Literary Award. The Gulf, her first novel, was published by Grey Wolf in April of this year. I got to read that one and I loved it. Its chief protagonist is, among other things, an MFA graduate whose writing has stalled. <laughs> <laughs> it is a novel of comedy, insight, and empathy, and my mother loved it too. <laughs> Belle has received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the North Carolina Arts Council, and the Breadloaf and Sewanee Writers Conferences. She's an associate professor of creative writing at North Carolina State University, where she also directs the MFA program. Belle grew up visiting her granny in Lewisburg and her grandparents in Huntington on summer and winter breaks, so hopefully being here is a little bit like coming home. I'm glad she's here. Please welcome Belle Boggs. Thank you, Julia. That was so nice, and, um, and it does feel so nice. I actually learned that um, from my dad. I didn't visit this part of West Virginia when I was a kid, but my Boggs family um, was from around this area, so I don't know where, but I will find out more. They were not like big into, or my dad has not been big into genealogical tracing, um, but I will find out. And um, thank you to um, Doug and Jesse for inviting me, and thank you all for being here. Um, I'm excited um, to read a little bit from the Gulf tonight. Um, so I'm going to read from two different sections um, to give you a sense of the book. And, um, and then I'll uh, take, not for not too long, I wore my husband's watch so that I could keep an eye on the time. And, um, and then I can answer questions that people might have. So the Gulf is about a struggling poet named Marianne who gets roped into starting against her better judgment um, a low residency creative writing program for uh, <laughs> for evangelical Christians um, in a, an old motel on the Gulf Coast of Florida, and the motel belongs to her ex-fiance's um, great aunt, and um, and so he has convinced her that this is like their ticket. This is how they're going to support their writing, and how she'll be able to kind of get her writing mojo back. And it's in Florida, and she's getting kicked out of her apartment in Brooklyn anyway. So, um, so she, um, you know, decides to do this, and she's also an atheist. Um, so what could go wrong? Um, so you know, of course, many things go wrong, um, and um, and she she also has a lot.
lot of anger. Um, growing up in rural Virginia, where, where she um, was you know, raised, um, she was around a lot of evangelicals. And um, her sister is also um, a preacher's wife now and is very, very conservative. And, um, and this also, it's important to know that this takes place right in the time of uh, the rise of the Tea Party. And um, so she's been kind of, whenever she goes home, um, she's bombarded by all these, all the signage and, um, you know, all this anger about President Obama. And, um, you know, and she's like, yeah, I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll just go and I'll do this school and I'll take these people's money. And that's what happened to me. Um, and is what she thinks. She was an NYU grad. Um, and um, so I'm going to read to you um, a part um, that introduces uh, two of the central characters, Marianne and then uh, and Janine, um, who is um, the uh, one of um, the most important characters who comes into Marianne's life through this school, and she is. Um, an uh, untaught poet um, who is nevertheless very serious both about her faith and about writing poetry. So I hope that sets it up well enough. I'm going to read um, just a little bit and then skip forward. Across the Gulf, Janine Gray unlocked the file cabinet where she stored 10 years of lessons on nutrition, setting up a bank account, planning a budget, and checked the folder where she'd collected her photocopied submission materials. She reviewed the order of poems, the personal statement, even her own address neatly hand-lettered on the information page, which she'd also photocopied. Janine did not often apply for things, not credit cards, she did not believe in them, not mortgage applications, her husband had filled out the paperwork, and certainly not creative writing programs. How long would she have to wait before she heard something back? She had no idea. It was an extraordinarily personal and uncharacteristic thing she'd done, writing the statement and sending in the poems. If they, whoever they were, did not like her poems, would they write to her anyway? Would they respond to the something Janine had tried to say with the poems? She wished for a cup of coffee and a cigarette, an early afternoon break routine she'd established when the girls were little, before she'd started teaching. But she didn't smoke anymore. Hardly any of the other teachers at the high school did either. The ones who couldn't quit had to walk all the way to the teacher's parking lot to sit in their cars. And while Janine occasionally felt like joining them, say someone set a fire in the kitchen, or she suspected a student may have called her a bad name in his native language, she resisted. How would it look for the life skills teacher to demonstrate such a nasty addiction? Life skills. When Janine was in high school, they called it home economics. The curriculum had hardly changed, some sewing, some cooking, really the preparation of prepackaged convenience foods, and a little math. But home ec, the principal said, had a girly and old-fashioned ring to it, and the students were no longer the same perky future housewives who had been Janine's classmates. No, Janine's students were bored, gum-snapping girls, delinquent boys who needed one more class to graduate, 10th graders who could not read or pronounce the word ingredients. These were students bound for work in fast food restaurants and big box stores, some of them bound for deportation. And every year more of them, 28 in a classroom meant to hold 22, 30 sometimes. Janine knew the word whore in several languages and kept a stack of detention slips signed and filled out on her desk. 
gross disrespect she'd written under reason on every one. One day, last fall, the principal came to speak to her about the frequency of her detention referrals. Didn't she think it would be better to work on her relationships with the students? He was a reasonable, maddeningly patient man who taught for exactly one year. You mean, Janine said, I should let them? Not let them, the principal said. Work with them. That was when Janine started writing the poems. At first, she'd simply flipped the detention slips over and started writing. Someone used the smooth green jersey intended for frog-shaped pillows to make a pot leaf. She wrote a poem. Someone used the hot dogs meant to be baked into pigs and blankets for lewd gestures. Poem. Someone cussed, talked over her lessons, texted, or passed notes. Poem. The students had thought she was writing detention slips, and they would wait for her to hand them over so they could suck their teeth and roll their eyes at her. But she merely stuffed the slips into her top desk drawer and continued with the lesson. This is how to remove a seam. This is how to season a pan. This is how to extinguish a grease fire. What you doing with them slips, Miss Gray? Asked a boy who'd spent most of life skills one in detention. He had passed. That seemed to be the point of life skills. Everyone passed and was back for more as two of the classes made one math credit. He eyed her desk nervously. You saving him up or something? Janine had shrugged. Just writing something to myself, she said. He held out his hand. If I'm gonna have detention, I'll take it now, he said. But I haven't given you detention, Janine said. I was only writing. Not because of me? I didn't say that, Janine said. <laughs> they went back and forth for a while. None of the students was able to confirm that Janine was not hoarding a trove of detentions to be formed in the distant future into a mega detention. But they were also not able to dispel the worry. One day's detention served on the spot. That was one thing. That was survivable. But facing a desk crammed with them, that was another thing entirely. And for Janine, the poems helped. At first, they were about the students themselves and their strange, unknowable, ridiculous choices. Why would someone choose to ruin perfectly good food? Why not spend a class period sewing a cute stuffed animal or a pair of boxer shorts instead of clowning around and breaking expensive sewing machines? Why would someone take another student's homework and ruin it? But then she grew bored with these questions and her mind drifted to larger concerns. She'd always been an avid letter writer, mostly to her local newspaper. She did not, for the life of her, understand why a student prayer group could not pray before assemblies and football games. She questioned teaching sex ed to middle schoolers. She thought that parents should take more responsibility for their own children instead of expecting the schools to feed them breakfast, lunch, and snack and teach them things for that, were, that were once learned in church or at home. Soon she was no write, longer writing letters at all, but drafting everything she had to say about the word in lines, world in lines and stanzas. Janine returned the folder to its place and locked the file cabinet. Her classroom had one measly window, and she could see that the storm her daughter warned her about was churning the sky with dark gray clouds. Her students had spent the morning debating the possibility of school cancellation. Just a little bitty storm, one of them said dismissively. When she got home, there'd be more to do, taking down awnings and bird feeders, folding up the lawn chairs left out after her daughter's afternoon tanning sessions. It would be nearly six o'clock before she finished, no time to write or even sit down for a moment. She unlocked and opened her
her cabinet again and rummaged beneath the folders for the familiar crinkly package, a stale pack of menthols she was saving for a day such as this. She closed her fingers around the package, then let go. She had a stack of papers to grade, and surely Rick was not taking a break at his job. He didn't believe in breaks and would work straight through a 12-hour hot Sunday just to set an example for his crew. Everything in Rick's world was done according to a predictable schedule and for a purpose. He didn't believe in anything as wasteful as a smoke break. Janine imagined what the cigarette would taste like outside with the wind whipping and the air taking on a sudden sharpness. In the early years of their marriage, Janine had stayed home, and even then she'd written stories for the girls, letters to her sister, then to the editors of various North Florida newspapers. She'd never written poetry, not until this year, and she couldn't explain it well to anyone except Rick, who'd been her truest confidant ever since they started dating way back in high school. I don't know how it happened, she told him. It's like I'm suddenly talking in a new language. She'd shyly handed the poems over one morning in bed, and Rick had handled them reverently, then excused himself for his morning BM. After spending an hour with them in the bathroom, he confessed that he didn't understand the new language she was speaking, but he believed whatever it was must be coming from God. Rick believed firmly in the intervening hand of God. He was like one of those biblical men who built boats and temples on command, the kind of man strong and certain that the world didn't make anymore. Janine sometimes felt an acute pain for her daughters, knowing they'd never find a man like their father. Why do you need to go someplace else to write? Rick had asked her early this morning when she showed him the application to the ranch, which she did not tell him she'd mailed two weeks ago. At the beginning of the summer, he'd built Janine a solarium, an octagonal room with glass walls and smooth white oak floors. He'd set her desk in the center of the room, facing out at the various staked bench feeders in their yard. And when Beth, their older daughter, had wanted to use the space for her elliptical trainer, Rick had told her no, her mother needed that room to write. It was hard to explain that the room itself, along with the application, seemed to be interfering with her writing, with the hand of God that once guided her poems. It was embarrassing to think about one of her neighbors seeing her in the act of writing, though imagining some professor at the school reading the 12 short poems she'd enclosed with her application was not any easier. I want to be around another other poets, Janine had tried to explain. Oh, he'd said, and she could tell that he was a little hurt. Also, I want a teacher, someone to help me make the poems better, she'd said, though it was hard to imagine how one went about changing a poem. Okay, Rick had said, kissing her forehead. He took his lunch from the counter, three ham and cheese sandwiches, and an apple in a paper sack, and left for work, same as always. Janine followed him to the door and watched him haul his heavy frame into the cab of his truck, adjust the mirror, and wave goodbye. Will you be home early if the storm comes, she asked, called after him. He ducked his head out the window and looked up at the tranquil sky. It won't storm today, he told her. He did not seem to be thinking anymore about the school. That was the thing about Rick. He never held on to emotions for long. Perhaps if the room had not been glass, she thought now. Because he had nothing to hide, Rick believed in absolute transparency. None of the bedroom doors in their house locked, and Rick and Janine had shared the same email account for more than 10 years. How could she explain that poems needed privacy that would have been better for her if he'd simply cleared out a closet? Janine checked her application folder one last time, 
then closed and relocked the drawer. It was likely she wouldn't get in anyway. What did she know about poetry? And who cared anymore about her subject, poor Terry Schiavo, who'd starved to death years ago? Mary Ann turned over the manuscript in her lap, yet another end times piece, and thought of her sister, who'd once confessed to reading the first of the Left Behind books. Did you like it? Marianne had asked, trying not to let her alarm show. It was okay, Ruth said, in that way she once had about most everything. She could take it or leave it, her tone seemed to imply, but Marianne thought what she was really saying was that she wasn't sure what she was supposed to like. Marianne had been that way herself as a teenager, and for many years she'd seen the process of becoming an adult as about replacing that uncertainty with strong, unyielding opinions about music about politics, about books, about art. In that way, she was not so different from her sister. Marianne did not believe in God and had suspected that he did not exist as soon as she noticed how much other people insisted on his existence. In high school, Ruth had become one of those people, attending a Baptist church three times a week and eventually dating and becoming engaged to the youth minister there. Their father, a community college philosophy professor who liked conflict on paper, but not in real life, insisted that it was a phase, provoked by postponed grief. He'd rebuffed Marianne's offers to come home, to get involved, and she hadn't pushed it. You know how she is, he'd said. That's a problem with people like you. You don't believe in anything, Ruth later claimed, full of certainty, when Marianne tried to talk her out of teenage marriage while their father despaired in his study. Not God, not God's love, not even love. Ruth was wrong to say that Marianne didn't believe in anything. She believed in things you could see or prove. She believed in science, believed in abortions, believed in the miracle of stem cells. She believed in population control and drug legalization, gun control and public transportation. She believed in generous arts grants and taxes for the rich. She thought everyone should be an organ donor and should have no say in the matter. She thought cats and dogs should be spayed and neutered and that no one should have children before the age of 30. She believed in climate change and the electric car and NPR and PBS and free speech and online privacy and free lunch and Medicaid. She believed in gay marriage and no marriage. She had no business starting a school for people equally passionate about their own opposing opinions, people who clearly believed in God. Her father said as much when she told him she was moving to Florida to start an inspirational writing ranch for evangelical Christians. That doesn't sound like you, was actually what he said. But at least she was doing something, participating in this world instead of letting it run over her or leave her behind, bending it to her needs instead of the opposite. The storm was taking its time. It seemed that she'd been watching the sky's gradual darkening, the gathering clouds, for hours now. Above the smoothness of sand worn down by surf, there was a thick stratum of black, papery-skinned mussels, each one broken open and picked clean by a seabird. Oh, I'm as happy as a clam, Marianne remembered telling Ruth once when her sister asked over the phone how she was doing. It was maybe a year after their mother died, and every call from home was still a shock. It was her mother she wanted to tell about her classes, her friends, the problems of dorm life. Any other voice, even her baby sisters, left her with a hollow feeling in her stomach. Just how happy are clams anyway, Ruth had asked. In her youth and her earnestness, she'd been serious, 
though for a moment she'd sounded just like their mother, had brought her back to life, performed a miracle. Sometimes it made Marianne angry, not believing in God. So I'm going to skip forward a little bit, um, or a lot bit. I'm going to skip forward to um, the school. And um, so one of the more um, upsetting <laughs> um, things that happens to the school, the Genesis Inspirational Writing Ranch, um, for Marianne is um, that um, as um, they try to start the school, put the school together with this kind of motley crew of teachers um, um, who are also, you know, uh, you know, different in perspective from the students, um, they realize that they lack funding and that they need more money. And one of the things that happens to the school is that it attracts these investors, um, God's Word, God's World, which is um, a, um, a, a corporation that invests and founds uh, for-profit um, uh, vocational schools. And um, so they get the idea that, in fact, this school would would work for their brand, and um, and you know decide to invest some money into the um, into the writing ranch, and so I'm going to read you um, the first tour that um, three of the GWGW um, uh, like executives take of um, of the school, and um, during the um, the first um, residency of the students. Um, okay, I'm just going to read a little bit. The tour went less than well. All three workshops met concurrently, and with so little else to see, they dispensed quickly with the pool, the beach, the dining hall, and the common spaces, though all three visitors dutifully admired the sculpture garden. They had no choice but to open the door on each classroom where the business of education was taking place. In Tom's workshop, Patty Connor, author of a 600-page manuscript about her eight miscarriages, was pressing tissues underneath her eyes and shaking her head vigorously. But that's exactly how it happened, she was saying, or rather sobbing, while someone patted her arm and another woman handed her tissue after tissue, pulling them from the box one after the other as if that would somehow stop her crying. At the head of the long workshop table, Tom, Dressed in his usual jeans, t-shirt, and safari jacket, leaned back in his chair. He looked helpless and stricken. Memoir, whispered Marianne to Regina, backing them out of the room. It brings up a lot of feelings. In their classroom, the poets were doing some kind of exercise. All of them bent over their notebooks in the obedient posture of school children. Lorraine had not devoted any class time to workshopping the students' poems yet, but had introduced the idea of the generative workshop, in which the goal was to collect not praise or suggestions, but ideas and material. Now they were each sketching something intently. On the board, there were two stick figures locked in some sort of combat, one labeled TK, the other LK. Lorraine was smoking. She had propped a small fan facing outward in the open window and was considerately blowing her smoke in its direction. Your worst sexual memory, she was saying between puffs. Any age. Marianne held her breath and looked at the ceiling while Regina made notes with a stylus on a black, shiny tablet. Marianne wondered where else they could find investors. She wondered if they'd, she'd have to give her phone back. 
Already she'd gotten used to sending emails and reading the news on its small, glowing screen. Matt and Christopher, these were the two other visitors who did not have tablets to hold, circled the room, peeking rudely at the students' open pages, their faces registering expressions of confusion, concern, and disgust. Professor Kaminsky won the Yale Younger Poets Prize, Marianne offered as they left. She is really an inspiring teacher. She's been through a lot. Kaminsky, Regina mused, is that a Polish name? Thinking that Eric had the best control over his students and likely the most conventional teaching style, Marianne had saved his class for last. When planning the ranch months ago, she'd given him the best classroom too, a cabana and game room steps from the beach. Though the seating was cramped, 11 people spit snugly, elbow to elbow around the small table. The gulf views were incredible, and Marianne thought the ocean smell, the sounds of the waves and the gulls would be invigorating and inspiring. But she could hear voices arguing even over the sound of the waves as they approached. So one of the fiction members of the workshop, um, so the, the teacher of the fiction workshop is Eric, her ex-fiance, and one of the members of the, the most famous member of the workshop is um, a, a performer named Devante Gold, who is um, an R&B superstar who has fallen on like hard luck and is trying to write on a semi-autobiographical novel. Um, she thought of turning around, heading back to the office to dial up Mark on speakerphone, but Regina stepped powerfully ahead, her heels crunching into the sand. Devante leaned forward across the table, obviously exercised, his forearms propped on the pile of papers. Why don't you just say his name? Come on, don't play dumb with us. We all know who you're talking about. The author of the work, a placid-looking retiree with a snow-white beard and snow-white sneakers, was reddening slightly around the temples. As I stated before, this is a work of speculative fiction. None of the characters are intended to resemble any individual, actual living person. Oh, come on, Devante groaned. America's first president of Lebanese descent. Everyone votes for him because of his one-word slogan, trust. He negotiates a global arms control treaty and brings about world peace. And then in chapter five, it turns out that he's the Antichrist. Again, this is not a work of political commentary. My novel clearly takes place in the future, as indicated by the title, 2016, The Final <laughs> Battle. The other students looked uncomfortable. Help me out here, Eric, Demonte said. Marianne willed Eric to say something diplomatic, to soothe with vague praise and move on, but it was too late. I understand that this is speculative fiction, Lewis, but in order for those of us still living in the present to relate to it, your premise has to be believable. Matt snorted, apparently finding Lewis's premise quite believable. So in the year 2016, Eric continued, a world peace treaty is a bad thing? It is when it leads to one world government. And just playing devil's advocate here, haha, but that is a bad thing because, because once the Antichrist controls all the governments of the world, he will be able to turn their power against the church. The church is his ultimate adversary. You'll understand once you read chapter 14, or once you reread your book of Revelation. This answer seemed to mollify Devante. Well, I do remember that in Revelation, the mark of the beast and such. 
He shuffled his papers, his voice softening. All I'm asking is why it's got to be Obama, though. Young man, I do not intend to state or imply that a President Obama is the Antichrist, Lewis offered. Devante lifted one of his forearms off the table. Only that we must remain vigilant in case he's the Antichrist. You see, it is far too early to tell. President Obama is not the Antichrist, Eric snapped. Goddamn right about that, muttered Devante. How do you know? None of us can know for certain, said a woman at the end of the table. Oh, please, someone else moaned. Again, President Oliver Hussein is a composite of various... Eric was already rounding the table on his way to show Marianne and her visitors the door. That was one of our more challenging pieces, he said once they reached the hallway. I firmly believe workshop can be a place where we all learn about each other's views and treat them with respect, where we can learn not only about writing, but also about other people. Other people are so fascinating. Thanks, Eric, Marianne said, turning away with her GWGW guests. She was certain they would be on their way soon, never to return, taking their polo shirts and tote bags and frisbees with them. Marianne wondered how they could make up for the money they'd be losing. Maybe enroll more students, solicit more applications. She hoped they would let her keep the Rubik's Cube. There are some tweaks to be made for sure, Regina said as they made their way back to the office. She was still tapping things into her tablet. The screen reflected the Florida sun in such a way that Marianne had no idea what she could be noting. Perhaps she was texting her boyfriend or ordering shoes online. Some adjustments, but there always are. You should have seen the School of Cosmetology when we got there. Goth City, Matt said. Stripper City, Christopher said. We've found that a set of guidelines helps, explained Regina, waving her hand in a gesture that said to Matt and Christopher, shut up, about conduct, appearance, and expectations. It sets the tone for the students. Right, Marianne said. Wait, you're not leaving? You're still interested in us? It's a process, Regina said. We are prepared to help you in this time of growth and transition. That's why we're here. We're not exactly talking about beauty school students here, Marianne said, and I can't really see Tom in a polo shirt. No offense. None taken, Regina said, though Matt and Christopher both looked down at their shirts, perplexed, as if they were part of their own poly cotton skins. The four of them reached the office and stood for a moment at its cracked cement steps. Marianne was reminded of the awkwardness after a bad first date, how much you wanted it to be over so you could have your regular self back. Regina carefully set down her tablet on one of the steps and held her hand above her eyes, scanning the campus like she was sizing the place up for demolition. She bent down and made another tap or two with her stylus, then smiled brightly at Marianne. We'll be talking about becoming publicity ready and also market ready. Market ready? Remember what you said about not being able to find a job? Regina didn't wait for Marianne to answer. What if you didn't have to find a job? Can you imagine selling enough books that you could support yourself, your family? No, said Marianne. The idea of a collection of poetry supporting a family sounded like a kind of suspicious trickery, like stone soup. Regina held up her tablet, made two taps with her stylus, and angled the screen for Marianne to see. Do you know what this is? A spreadsheet, Marianne guessed. It's a spreadsheet of bestsellers, Regina said in a pleased teaching tone that was at once impersonal and intimate. She tapped to show Marianne the way it was organized, a basket weave of numbers. Organized by year, tap, by genre, tap, by sales region. Marianne squinted at the screen. I have a mental block for charts and graphs, she admitted. It's one of the intelligences. I was born without it. Sorry. 
Well, to summarize, Regina said patiently, four years ago, the Christian sub share of the bestseller market was 6%, averaged across genres, though slightly higher in memoir. Two years ago, it was 9%. Last year, it was 12.5%. If you look back 10 years, you see the same thing. On the screen, she opened a graph that made a staircase pattern, the steps getting steeper at the end. What do you mean by Christian share, though, Marianne asked. I mean, couldn't those Mormon vampire books count? We do not count books written by writers who happen to be Christian, said Regina. We counted only specifically, deliberately, Christian-themed, Christian message books bought by Christians, like the Resurrection series or the WWJD novels. Marianne remembered seeing the author of the WWJD novel series on the Today Show. She had been a wild-eyed, unkempt woman who'd come from somewhere Marianne had never been, Nebraska, Oklahoma. The premise was brilliantly boring, a choose-your-own-adventure series for middle-grade readers. At the end of each chapter, you were supposed to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Then choose that option. But reading the books, choosing the less Jesus-y path, and guessing its outcome, had also become a popular teenage drinking game. <laughs> One teenager had died, and another was hospitalized. This was the reason Matt Lauer interviewed the author, and the reason Marianne knew the series. Half of these books start out as self-published, said Regina, opening another screen, this time pie charts. Until they get market share, your average New York City editor doesn't want anything to do with them. Typical, right? She looked at Christopher and Matt. Typical, said Matt. Completely, said Christopher, with more venom. It makes me sick. But Regina had turned back to her screen. We're thinking GWGW can find the great ideas first. Or, she said, lowering her voice conspiratorially, grow the ideas right here. We at GWGW can train your educators to work on the kind of exercises and programs that will help your students achieve this type of success. Or we can help you find new educators. You look sort of pale, Marianne. Do you need some water? Christopher and Matt, please get Marianne some water. No, I'm okay, Marianne said. She was trying to imagine holding such a workshop with Tom and Lorraine. My headler hurts a little, that's all. It's the sun, Regina said, as Christopher handed Marianne a bottle of water branded with the GWGW logo. Also, this must be a lot to think about. Why don't you let me email you with some of this information and we'll formulate a plan of attack. Marianne nodded, chugging GWGW water like a teenager in a drinking game. Thank you. Uh -oh.